0: So, it's <clears throat> the fifth Sunday, and uh, this year we're going to try just uh, keeping the elementary kids in service on the fifth Sunday. It's always a little bit of a challenge scheduling-wise to round up enough volunteers for that week. So, we're going we're gonna to give it a go. So, um, I forgot to bring my balloons to make animals and stuff to make this entertaining or my mind paint or something. I don't know. We're going to have to try to be as exciting as I can. <laughs> hey... Um, <clears throat> The first part of Galatians 2.20, if you're familiar with that verse, uh, in it Paul writes this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And that's a pretty profound and and somewhat uh, puzzling reality to kind of wrap your minds around, that, that Christ lives in me, that I, as I know myself, no longer live. And uh, this past spring, I was reading this little book called The Selfless Way of Christ, written by a guy named Henry and who we talk about from time to time, And, and he kind of explained that reality like this. He said, indeed, to live a spiritual life means to become living Christ. It is not enough to try to imitate Christ as much as possible. It is not enough to remind others of Jesus. It is not even enough to be inspired by the words and actions of Jesus No, the spiritual life presents us with a far more radical demand to be living Christ here and now in time and history. Regardless of the particular shape we give to our lives, Jesus' call to discipleship is primal, all-encompassing, all-inclusive, demanding a total commitment. One cannot be a little bit for Christ, give him some attention, or make him one of many concerns. So he says, we are not to imitate Jesus, to remind others of Jesus, or to be inspired or or challenged by Jesus, but our call is to be Jesus, to be living Christ in the here and now as God goes about his work redeeming and restoring humanity. And so if we are going to be a community of people, a church who are striving to be living Christ then we better up our game in terms of understanding the way in which he did it. As we began talking about last week, the way he went about living and ultimately dying. So last Sunday, we began this series on, on the way of Christ. And we began by taking a look at a verse that's pretty familiar to most of us. It's John 14, 6. And it says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And so we started off by saying, you know, the reality is, is that, pretty much everybody wants the life, right? The abundant life, God says, I've come to give you. Everybody wants that. We said that some people want some of the truth. And a lot of times it's kind of the truth as we kind of understand it or interpret it or define it. And that very few of us really want to do that, having the life and the truth in the way of Jesus. Very few of us want to do it that way. For the most part, we kind of want to do Christianity our way and then kind of hope that Jesus kind of blesses whatever our best efforts are at following him. So, why is that? Why do so few of us actually live in the way of Christ? Well, as we concluded last week, we, we acknowledge that the predominant storyline in our American experience, is this storyline of upward mobility, right? And we talked about that, that, that contrasted deeply from Christ's kind of clear and relentless life of downward mobility, and those two things are at tension with one another. And so to be Jesus means that we have to reject everything that we have been trained in as Americans, everything that we've seen, and we have to embrace this completely opposite way of living that on the surface looks really demanding and hard and that the rewards are somewhat intangible, at least in the here and now, which is why Jesus said so few would choose his path, right? In Matthew 7, familiar verse to you as well, seven thirteen and 14, he says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I kind of felt like Jesus uh, was, was, uh, when I try to talk kids into running cross-country, right? I'm a cross-country coach at Central, and I hang around, you know, the middle school kids, Bodie and Truman, and go to their meets and try to talk them into running. Tried to talk Brett Williams into running at one point, didn't I? Probably several other of you. And you go to them and you're like, hey, listen, this, this sport cross country, it's, it's really, really hard. And nobody at school is going to know if you're any good or not. Nobody's going to pay attention to you. None of them are ever going to come and watch you run. And it's going to be really painful most of the time. And there's not a ball involved. And there's no cheerleaders, no band, no assemblies, nothing. The paper won't write about you, but it's going to be awesome. And you're going to have the time of your life, Right? It's kind of a, it's a tough sell job, right? And Jesus, sometimes when you're hearing him say, hey, yeah, come and follow me, and then you hear kind of the life he describes, you're like, ah, oh, I don't know, man, That's doesn't sound that amazing on the surface, right? <clears throat> and I'm not even sure that we understand as we kind of try to wrap our minds around what this culture and living in this culture of upward mobility has really kind of done to us, how entrenched we are in our hearts and mind, in, in this storyline of, of upward mobility. And it's, and it's everywhere. And particularly, some things just popped right off the top of my head were school, athletics, and the media. And just as a brief, interesting little poll here, I want you to think back. Some of you guys are thinking back longer than others. But to when you were a kid, and, and the reality kind of first set on you that there's this storyline of how you kind of get affirmed in life is by being successful and that's when you got the pats in the back and people noticed you and so I want you to think in your mind when, when was it for you can you think of a moment where that kind of clicked like oh this is how I get praise this is how I get noticed this is what Success means in our culture And even as a kid you might not have connected all the dots But you started to kind of realize Anybody have an example of when that kind of Came to pass in their life Where they started to realize that's what Being an American was all about And that was being ingrained in you Anyone Bueller Anyone Yes Charlotte thank you Awkwardly long Yes Okay. That's when you know, you know, when I became a teacher in elementary school, that's when I knew okay. that was success. Now it's important. And- okay. So getting your first job. First time, but that was a big time. Yeah, a big time was getting your first job and feeling like you'd kind of arrived, right? Made your parents proud, sure, all that. What else? Yeah. Well, for our family, it was grades, and so you know, third or fourth grade when you start like getting honor roll. Yeah. yeah right so honor roll when you're a kid right third or fourth grade and that's her sister right in front of her she's like yes yes right then you have this standard that once you make honor roll you always got to make honor roll right or else you're going backwards and that's no good right yes okay how many times you could get your picture in the yearbook right to find your future success right You don't want to be the loser that just has only your picture from the class, right? you got to be involved in things. They've got to capture you being in the moment, right? One of this is, this tells you a little bit about me. One of the pictures in my high school yearbook is me telling other people what to do with the float building thing. Everybody else is working and I'm standing there pointing, do this, get up there, put it there. And then you knew kind of what my life was going to be like, right? The camera don't lie. I remember for me, and I I was, I mean, I was an an okay student. I mean, I made B's mostly as a kid, but I was a pretty decent athlete. And so for me, I started to understand that the way that I was going to be accepted by other boys, especially as I moved a lot from school to school, year to year, we kind of went through a stretch where we kind of moved around a lot, was that I had to go out on the playground and prove myself. And I had to be successful. And that's how I got accepted and affirmed. And if, thank God I was a decent athlete because didn't have much else going for me so but i learned that lesson quick and um i also want you to think about this <clears throat> and we'll see if our audience yeah, participation could be a little bit quicker here what are some of the side effects of living in a culture like that what are some of the side effects what do you see in kids that culture of you've got to make that honor rolls and third and fourth like what are some of the byproducts of that what does it do to us yeah do what yeah, you can't handle failure, right? The fear of not making it. Yeah. Yeah. Anything. Okay. The other side of that is that you, you find that I know how to play the game, and I've been successful, and then pride builds up, right? And then you kind of look maybe sometimes at other people and be like, well... Why can't they figure this out, you know? And so it could have both kinds of effects. It could, be, it could be, it'd be something that kind of really kind of builds your pride up and you kind of look down on other people. Or it could be like that you feel like you're never going to measure up and so it just kills your self-esteem, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Your value is completely determined on what other people say about you and your performance as opposed to just who you are and who God says that you are. Yeah, good. Gary? I'm sorry, say that again. You give up on things but you do so slowly. Okay. You do right. Yeah, you just stop trying to do things you're not successful at, right? It's like when you're a kid and you, you play that one game that you can't win, and then you're like, well, I'm not playing that anymore, right? Let's get that other game out that I beat you at, right? Anything else? Somebody else had a hand over here, Phil? You all your time practicing for Wow, yeah. Yeah, he said you spend all of your time practicing for the things that is gonna, are going to be getting you attention, and you stop doing all the little things that kind of nobody sees that really develop your character. Man, that's, that's good. Phil, you want just want to come up here and finish this for me? <laughs> <clears throat> that's more profound than anything I've got to say. And as I was reading through the rest of this Now in Book, I was talking about a little bit earlier and reflecting on on this storyline that we've been entrenched in and lived as Americans for so long, I came across this paragraph that that really resonated with my experience. I'll put it up there on the screen for you. You get a swig of water real quick. He says this, he says, Somewhere deep in our hearts we already know that success, fame, influence, power, and money do not give us the inner joy and peace we crave. Somewhere we can even sense a certain envy of those who have shed all false ambitions And found a deeper fulfillment in their relationship with God. Yes, somewhere we can even get a taste of that mysterious joy in the smile of those who have nothing to lose. These intuitions and insights reveal that something in us is already suspicious about the upward way. And here's kind of what I thought after I read that. I said, you know what, we're suspicious. But to be honest, I'm not sure that we're convinced. And what I mean by that is that we sense that this world and the things in this world um, aren't going to bring us happiness ultimately, but we'd kind of like to try it out just in case it it does, right? Like we can say all we want, well, money doesn't bring you happiness, but, you know, if you win the lottery, you're going to take the money? Probably. You're probably going to see if it brings you happiness or not. I'm going to give it a shot, right? I kind of thought about this comparison of, you know, when I was in high school, at some point... I kind of realized that a lot of the pretty girls were kind of shallow and somewhat self-centered, but if one of them asked me to go to prom with them, I'm probably still saying yes. You know what I'm saying? All right? I mean, maybe I'll find the one, you know, right, that, that's really got great character. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, yeah. And the problem is, is that some of the things in the world can give you some happiness for a time. Absolutely, good. So as we read about this and study the life of Christ in the Bible, it becomes very clear as you look at his story that he was very intentional about this downward movement and rejecting the path of upward mobility. And in fact, you, you see him time and again specifically choose to not buy into the storyline of the Roman Empire, the one that was completely about power and, and uh, uh, dominion and, you know, expansion and, and dominating society. And again and again, he said, I'm rejecting that way of living. And, and he modeled, and even some of his Jewish counterparts had kind of played into that. So, and he modeled this downwardly mobile life. But I think to understand fully the downward mobility of christ so we have to understand where he came from to begin with okay so in the gospel of john john was one of jesus's disciples and he's writing about him and he starts off in john 1 1 the very first things that he says right out of the gate is this he says in the beginning was the word jesus and the word was with god and the word was god and so from the very beginning, we get this understanding that Jesus, before he came and put on skin and came to this earth, he was with God. And so where was God? Well, the prophet Isaiah gets a glimpse of God and described it like this in Isaiah chapter six, right? He says, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him were seraphim Fancy word for angels. Each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And so that's one person's kind of, you know, God kind of peeled back the curtain and gave them a chance to kind of see God in his glory. And that's where Jesus was. Until that appointed time in history when Jesus leaves that throne room. And as John puts it, also in the first chapter, it says, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. But how did he make his dwelling among us? Right? So he's going to come and he's going to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So surely he was born in a castle, right, to the noble parents of, of prestige and privilege so that, so that when he came that people would listen to him. I mean, nobody listens to a nobody. But you guys know that that's the exact opposite. We all know the story, right? Jesus is born to two poor teenage insignificant parents in an insignificant town. And the only people that really know he's born are some livestock and some shepherds. I mean, it could not be more humble and unassuming, the exact opposite of what you would think if somebody was going to come to this world and, and have some, some power and privilege and change things. And if you continue to watch his story, you just see this continual downward movement. He started off just like most of us do in a home with a family of parents who loved him and cared about him. But then when he started his ministry and started saying, hey, this guy that you've lived around your whole life, I'm God, he gets kicked out of his hometown And so now he's just a a homeless wanderer. And this is how Jesus described life in ministry. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Basically, I don't know where I'm sleeping tomorrow. And this lifestyle of downward mobility continued to the very end. You see, as his ministry goes on, crowds start growing and growing and growing until you finally see his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the streets are lined with people Praising his name, trying to make him king. And Jesus rejects it. And by the end of that week, he allows himself to be arrested and falsely accused and put on trial and beaten and mocked and nailed to a cross at a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. Nothing glamorous, nothing upwardly mobile in the world's eyes at all. That was the way of Jesus. And now in his book he says this, he said he moved from power to powerlessness, from greatness to smallness, from success to failure, from strength to weakness, from glory to ignominy. The whole life of Jesus of Nazareth was a life in which all upward mobility was resisted. So when we see very clearly the downward mobility of Jesus... And then we're reminded that we are to be living Christ in this world. How do we reconcile that? How do we reconcile it? In my devotion time this week, I was reading through the book of First John, and I came across First John 2, 6, which says this. It says, whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So John makes it pretty clear that it's, it's not as much about just making sure that you've prayed a prayer so you're saved so you can go to heaven or that you've been forgiven or what it is that you believe or don't believe about Jesus. He says you have to live like Jesus lived. You must do that. We don't seem to have the option of taking the goodies of Christianity but then living any way that we want to. The way marked by downward mobility is the life we're called to. So what do we do with that? Most of us kind of try to straddle it, right? Try to, you know, with our best efforts, live like Jesus while still clinging to the things of this world. Trying to have as much of the good life as we can afford. Always kind of hoping that maybe we'll get a little bit more. I don't really know the answer. I think for starters, most of us need to come to him and just say, we don't know how to do it. We just need to be honest and just say, I don't know how to, how to bridge that gap. It reminds me of a conversation that Jesus has with this religious scholar in the book of John is where the story is recorded, this is a guy named Nicodemus, and he's been watching Jesus from a distance, and he's seen the way Jesus is healing and teaching and, and doing things very... Unconventional, and he's, he's puzzled by it all. <laughs> he, he can't make it all make sense. And so he, he engages Jesus in this conversation. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 3, it's page 740 in your Pew Bibles, real quick. <clears throat> John chapter 3. It says, Now there was a Pharisee, which is a religious scholar, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And so, in other words, Jesus is saying to this guy who was really trained in the Bible, the Old Testament, I mean, knew it inside and out, that you need to start over. That you need to consider that everything that you think you might know about God could be completely wrong and basically how to live in his way. And start over. Just like a baby comes into this world really kind of knowing nothing, we come to Christ. And we're entrenched in this upwardly mobile mindset. And the Bible says your, your minds have got to be transformed. Right? Paul in Romans twelve two said this, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, the pattern of upward mobility, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I mean, it is like starting over to view things the way Jesus does, right? I I, I sit with people every week and try to talk to them about, like, what it means to become a Christian. I try to explain that life. And for somebody that has never connected those dots or lived in that way or experienced the truth of that, it is like a foreign language to them, right? I'm like... Trust me, cross-country is really fun, right? That's what I feel like sometimes, and even when I'm trying to explain the gospel. And the Christian movement throughout history has wrestled with this very same tension, and they've responded in in various ways. And there was a, a series of several hundred years uh, you know, 15, 16, 1700s, where there was one side of the Christian movement that, that seemed like they just didn't hear any of this. <laughs> and they got off onto to building these amazing cathedrals, ornate and filled with gold and the finest, you know, to give glory to God and honor Him. We got to make Him the finest stuff. And they did it on the backs of the common man. And they would, they would take laborers 100 years to build these cathedrals in Europe that you visit now. And then you saw the counterculture movement against that. And you saw all these monasteries start popping up. And this guy named St. Francis of Assisi, you've probably heard of. And Francis was a guy whose father was a textile uh, owner. He owned a company. and, And he could have continued on that path and had a pretty good living. But when he encountered Jesus and he saw the Jesus in Scripture, he just couldn't do it. And so he he kind of gave up his inheritance, sold everything that he had, and started this, this brotherhood called the Franciscans, these monks. And it was it was a, a rule that everybody that came and, and became a Franciscan monk had to sell everything and had to take a vow of absolute poverty. Because when when Francis looked at the scripture and he saw a Jesus who owned nothing, He could not figure out a different way, another way to follow and be like Jesus than to give up everything that this world could offer, to be completely surrendered to him. And I'm not here to propose solutions to you, okay? Because the reality is, is I'm gonna go home to my house and my car today, right? I'm probably not gonna sell it all tomorrow. And and, and I'm not even sure that if, I went out and did that, that that would be the answer. Because it's really less about doing some crazy, radical thing as much as it is about the attitude of your heart. What is it that I desire in this world? Is it the things of this world, or is it to know Christ more? So I just want to challenge us to all ask some tough questions. And I think that's what this guy named Shane Claiborne did. He was a a college student in Philadelphia who worked in the the inner city of Philadelphia amongst the poor. And and after college, he started this movement of people called The Simple Way. And they all moved into the projects with these folks that they've been doing ministry and just lived life with them, just became with them, one of them. And this is what he had to say on this topic he said, if we are content with discipleship that ends merely with generosity, we still serve money. Generosity is a beautiful response, but we should not confuse it with love. Generosity is merely what is expected, what is required is to return that which has been stolen. Basil the Great, writing in the fourth century, put it this way When someone strips a man of his clothes, we call him a thief. And one who might clothe the naked and does not, should not he be given the same name? The bread in your cupboard belongs to the hungry. The coat in your wardrobe belongs to the naked. The shoes you let rot belong to the barefoot. The money in your vaults, or your bank accounts as it might be today, belongs to the destitute. Or in the words of Dorothy Day, who started the Catholic workers' movement in the late 1800s, she said this, If you have two coats... One of them belongs to the poor. Should we not then return our stolen goods with humility, like a child returning a stolen candy bar to the grocery store clerk? Those of us who yearn for the kingdom of God must follow in the steps of Jesus. Jesus was not in charge of the poor. He was poor. The message of Christ from the manger to the cross is that the world is conquered through weakness, through leastness, through struggle, not from the top, But from the bottom, the people want a mighty Messiah. They got a baby refugee. They wanted a powerful king to take over Rome. They got a wandering homeless man. He could have saved the world with his mighty power, but he did it through his ridiculous love. The power of God lies in the brokenness of Jesus, naked, cursed, spit upon, with birds picking at his flesh as he died the rotten death of a criminal. So we come hungry and humble to learn a new way, acknowledging that we might have to start over, even if we've been Christians for a while, and say, God, I really don't know how to bridge this gap between this upwardly mobile life I've been living and the downwardly mobile example that you lived. Luckily for us all, Jesus knew that this was going to be an incredible challenge. And so when he was about ready to, to go to heaven, he gathered his disciples up and he said, guys, I'm going to send somebody to help you live my way. And so he told them about the Holy Spirit. And this is what he said in John fourteen twenty six. He said, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, who the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things, will remind you of everything I have said to you. So if we are struggling to live as Jesus lived, to understand what it means to to live a downwardly mobile life in an upwardly mobile, mobile culture, then we have to cry out to the Holy Spirit inside of us and say, please come and teach us. Teach us how to live it, how to do it, this life that seems so foreign, because it doesn't seem like we have another option And then the second part of the deal, besides for just humbling ourselves and coming to God and saying, help me, is that when the Spirit speaks and convicts us about what we need to let go of, what are some of the upwardly mobile mindsets that we've bought into, that we have to obey and we have to begin responding to what the Spirit is saying to us, whatever that might be. Jesus has come that we may have life and have it to the full. But we have to do it his way. So, as we close this morning, we just finished this summer a series on praying scripture. Right? And and learning about, uh, you know, the things that scripture has to say and how we can just pray those things and kind of let them be ingrained in us and transform us. And in that same psalm that I was reading earlier, Psalm 25, that David wrote, In the midst of the confusion in his circumstances, this is what David prayed, and I thought it was very appropriate for what we're talking about now. David said, show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come to you this morning in the most affluent nation the world has ever known, all of us ingrained and entrenched in, the, in this upwardly mobile mindset, this life where success is rewarded, education, higher paying job, all those things are patted on the back and noticed in our culture And God, we need help to understand how to be you in the midst of this. And God, what you might say to each one of us may be different. And so God, I pray that we wouldn't compare ourselves to anybody else or think, oh, well, you know, I don't even have much money so I'm kind of off the hook. God, you've got something for all of us in this. And so we come to you and we say, God, show us your way, teach us your path, because our hope is in you, not in the things of this world. This world here, this life we live here is temporary. It's like a vapor, it's like a, a, a breath. And then there's eternity, and God, we don't want to put our hope in the wrong things things that are fleeting, things that won't last. God, we want to put our hope in you. So, Lord, as we go through this series and we open ourselves up to you, I pray, God, that we would really desire to come and to learn and to know you. And I think about times in my life where, where I prayed, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I really didn't mean it. And then other times where I was so desperate, I said, God, what do you want me to do with my life? And I was ready to go when you responded. And so, God, I pray we wouldn't go through the motions with this, where we say, oh, yeah, God, teach me how to be more downwardly mobile, but our heart's really not in it. Bring us to a place where we're ready to respond when we pray. And when you say, hey, I'd like you to let go of that, or hey, I'd like you to release that idea of what value is in this world. So bring us to that place, God, where we're ready to follow when you, when you give us our marching orders. We love you again, God. We thank you that you're patient. We thank you that you're merciful and gracious because we're all kind of lost in this journey, trying to figure it out, trying to be more faithful representatives of you in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We'll stand as we close and sing.